0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 11, The Pagan Twilight and the Serbian Dawn. So he left off last time with Bulgaria in a new position, one of strength and legitimacy. Krum and Omartag together had vastly increased the size of the state. They had built new fortresses, palaces, and border fortifications. They had also, through force of arms, made peace largely on their own terms in both the west against the Franks and the east against the Byzantines. But. As is so often the case in history, the best laid situations can easily fall prey to the fickle nature of human beings. And so, when Omartag died in 831, he had three sons, Enravotas, Svinice, and Malamir. Enravotas and was the oldest, but as we mentioned before, he was disinherited by his father for becoming a Christian, showing both the growing appeal of Christianity in Bulgaria as well as the continued resistance to it on the part of the ruling class. He was apparently converted by a Greek slave named Cinnamon, who had been captured at Adrianople by Krum. Now, it's, on the other hand, it's not clear what happened to the middle son Svinitze, because for some reason we just don't really know very much about him, he's barely mentioned, and he was not the successor. So, possibly because his, mother's, uh, his mother was Omartag's favorite wife, Malamir was ultimately chosen to be Omurtag's successor. Now, some sources do claim that Svinice was actually the father of Khan Boris, but most sources think that he was the son of Khan Presyan, who's coming later. So anyway, before we begin discussing Malamir, it's important to note in general that we know very little about the period we're going to be covering in this episode. Sources are very scarce, and the dates of the reigns of Malamir and his successor Presyan actually vary considerably. The two potential cases are either that Malamir reigned five years before Presyan took over, or that Malamir reigned a full 21 years. Now, the best current scholarship points to the former case, and so that's what we're going to go with. Now, because Omertag did not live into old age, and because Malamir was his youngest son, Malamir was most likely quite young when he ascended to the throne. As a result, his reign was in many ways dominated by his kavkhan, a position somewhat akin to that of prime minister combined with commander in chief. Now, this kavkhan was called Isbul, and he's worthy of some discussion because he's actually quite a remarkable figure himself. Now, Isbul was kavkhan during the reign of Omartag, and possibly even during the reign of Krum. So, by the time Malamir took over, Kavkhan was already well equipped to run the country as regent. Now, undoubtedly, this helped to ease the transition from Omertag to Malamir, and ultimately from Malamir to Presyan. In this sense, Izbul was the rock which kept Bulgaria stable throughout this period. But in fact, Izbul was also much more than that. So, you'll recall, that the Bulgarians and the Byzantines had signed a 30-year peace treaty in 815. So by the time Malamir took over, it still had nearly 15 years to go. This meant that the early years of Malamir's reign were peaceful. So what does that mean for us? That's right, that means we know almost nothing about it. As usual, if there's peace, no Byzantines are writing about what's going on in Bulgaria, if no Byzantines are writing about what's going on in Bulgaria, We know almost nothing. So, what we do know about these early years, uh, about Isbul especially, appears that uh, that he appears to have continued Omurtag's legacy of building. He constructed an aqueduct for the growing city of Preslav, and had some other building projects scattered throughout the country. So, what we don't know from Byzantine sources, we are getting more from archaeology. Now, again, this points to a reassuring level of continuity between Omartag and Malamir, likely created by Isbol. the fact that these building projects kept right on going. But unfortunately, another element of continuity uh, that was you know, kind of going on was the continued persecution of Christians, with Malamir finally executing his disinherited older brother Enravitas in 833 thereby making him the first Bulgarian to be canonized as a saint. So, though, they were almost, though these words were almost certainly 10 centuries later, an 11th century Bulgarian chronicler showed how his Christian successors would view Andravotas by attributing the following words to him. Quote, This faith, which I now die for, will spread and increase across the whole Bulgarian land. Although you may wish to oppress it with my death, In any case, the sign of Christ will establish itself and the churches of God will be built everywhere and pure priests will serve the pure God and will deliver sacrifices of praises and confession to the invigorating Trinity. Idols and priests as well with their ungodly temples will crumble and will turn into nothing as if they had not existed. Besides, you alone, speaking to Malamir, after many years will cast away your ungodly soul without receiving anything, in reward for your cruelty." Now This text shows how later Christianized Bulgarians would view many of their ancestors. The tension is obvious. Whereas on the one hand, later Bulgarians would be proud of the victorious early Khans and their great military victories, they also had to recognize that they were pagans who persecuted early Christians. That's a tension, which obviously said later, but was also clearly evident even in these years. I mean, the, the execution of Iravalta shows that there are some tensions building up even within the ruling class. If one member of a family converts to Christianity, they're disinherited, they're executed, this is clearly not good for Bulgaria. It's creating serious rifts. Okay, so getting back to the narrative. Malamir's reign came right in the middle of that 30-year peace with the Byzantines. This treaty simply didn't kind of conduct itself. It required reaffirmation every 10 years. And that anniversary came in 835, right in the middle of a diplomatic crisis. Now, you'll recall that when Krum took Adrianople, he transported its entire population of around 10,000 Christians to a place beyond the Danube, most likely in modern Romania or Moldova. Now, there, this population was given a degree of self rule but was still very dissatisfied with their situation. So, they eventually managed to get a a message to the Emperor Theophilus, requesting him to send ships up the Danube to rescue them. But Theophilus didn't want to rock the boat while the treaty was still in effect, and so he waited until the renewal period to send his ships. But these refugees would have to fight for their own freedom. So, hearing ships were on their way, these now 12,000 settlers moved across the river Pruth to their way down the Danube. But on the way, they were attacked by Bulgarian forces determined to block their escape. But this small Bulgarian detachment was defeated with great losses, and the refugees crossed the Pruth river. The Bulgarians at this point became somewhat desperate and called on the Magyars, who you'll remember I mentioned in the last episode. Now, Excuse me. Now, the Magyars were eager to take advantage of this excuse and plunder, so they presented themselves and demanded the surrender of the recently victorious refugees. But of course, the refugees refused, and were victorious yet again. So, remarkably, after more than 20 years in exile, they made it to the Byzantine ships and escaped, defeating both a Bulgarian and a Magyar force along the way. As you can imagine, this was a huge embarrassment for Bulgaria. It was terrible PR. It looked like Bulgaria can't control people who are in its own territory. But Malomir was somewhat occupied elsewhere at the time. He thought it was best to allow for some time before he renewed the peace treaty with the Byzantines as well. So, in a somewhat ironic fashion, both Theophilus and Malomir are kind of okay having a brief period of war before they restart the peace treaty. So while they're using that, while the Byzantines are using that gap to get their refugees back, Malamir was making a serious territory grab in the south. Now accounts differ, as usual, and it's possible that the Byzantines actually attacked first in the south. But either way, whatever happened, the Bulgarians were very soon on the offensive in this area. Now you'll recall from the following uh, episode that the wars of, about the wars of Krum that the fortress at Serdica, modern Sofia, and Philippopolis modern Plovdiv) had both been destroyed and depopulated. Thus, they were weak, isolated, and swimming in a sea of unruly Slavic subjects of the emperor, subjects who were not particularly loyal. So, in essence, they made for easy prey, as armies under the command of Isbul grabbed the territory. But ultimately, even these significant gains... You know, given the fact that these two captures will contain one day the two greatest Bulgarian cities, no offense, Varna and Borgas. but still, these gains were actually a diversion. Because the territory that the Bulgarians were truly after was that of Macedonia, to the southwest. But before we get that, we need to jump over to the transition of power. So again, we have to pause here in the narrative because Things, you know, lots of things are happening in lots of places at the same time. So, most likely, this was the time when Malamir died and was succeeded by his nephew Presian in 836. Again, right in the middle of the break in this 30-year peace treaty and these renewed conflict with the Byzantines. It's really all-or-nothing. You know, nothing happens for a number of years, and suddenly there's a break in the peace. There's several wars. There's refugees fleeing, and there's a new khan. Now, fortunately for Bulgaria, though, the state really didn't miss a beat in this power transition because, of course, Isbul kept right on running things. So, again, he's sort of saving the day by making sure as we're transitioning from Yang Khan to Yang Khan, things are not stopping, things are not having to sort of jolt around, and the the state's not having to reconfigure itself. So, having a prime minister running things in certain times can certainly be dangerous, but here it's an example when having a sort of... If you want to think about it, a non-dynastic prime minister was a huge boon to the Bulgarian state. Okay, so back to Macedonia. At this stage, some Bulgarians were already beginning to settle in the area, but it was still mostly full of Slavic tribes. But with the Byzantines distracted, there was really no one there to oppose the expansion of the Bulgarians. Or there was no one. Because around this time, the Serbs were just beginning to come together as a tribal group and assert themselves within the Byzantine Empire. So Byzantine forces weren't really there to stop it, stop the Bulgarians, but Serbs were just starting to make themselves known. So this was done, this sort of a coalition, this coalescing of the Serbian tribes, by a Serbian prince, or Knez, named Vlastimir. Vlastimir was alarmed at the rapid Bulgarian expansion of the past few decades, and was particularly alarmed at how close the Bulgarian frontier was getting to the territory occupied by Serbian tribes. But by now, the peace between the Bulgarians and the Byzantines was already back in force, and the Serbs under Vlastimir were Byzantine subjects. So, in the last few years of the reign of the Emperor Theophilus, he granted Serbs autonomy within the empire thus allowing them to fight the Bulgarian expansion while his tie- hands were tied fighting the Arabs. Also, allowing him to, in some ways, you know, maintain a technical peace with the Bulgarians while the Serbs could still fight them and check their expansion. So, how exactly did the Bulgarians then manage to take all these Macedonian territories? Now, there's no real record of them taking these territories by force yet they somehow managed to annex and occupy areas as far west as Ohrid. But how exactly did the Bulgarians manage this? There's no record of them taking these Macedonian territories by force, yet they somehow managed to annex and occupy territory as far west as Ohrid. So it's it's possible that they, well most likely, that they just took this territory during this lull in peace with the Byzantines, but we don't really have any specific references to that action in the sources. But however this happened, soon, within a few years, war would would break out between the Serbs and the Bulgarians, uh, specifically in 839. Now this was possibly done at the encouragement of the Byzantine Emperor, or it was possibly without his knowledge. So it's possible that the Byzantine Emperor was thinking, okay, I'm in the East fighting the Arabs, I want to kind of secure my Western flank, distract the Bulgarians, so I'm going to encourage the Serbs to attack them. Or it's possible that Vlastimir, on his own, Kind of initiative decided to attack the Bulgarians. So, whichever happened in that year when hostilities began, Preston decided this was perfect. It's a great opportunity for him to preempt growing Serbian power and destroy Vlastimir before he becomes too powerful. Because again, the Bulgarians, yeah, you know, I mentioned before, they, they moved to the south. They took uh, Sofia and Plovdiv, modern Sofia and Plovdiv, but their real interest was moved to the southwest. Into Macedonia. And so the Serbs, in fact, more than the Byzantines in some ways, were their greatest kind of obstacle towards further expansion. So the Serbs and the Bulgarians are both completely ready for this war. They're excited, they're ready to go. So soon an army led by Ispul enters Serbia. Now, this invasion allows Vlastimir to actually further consolidate his control over the Serbian tribes and organize an immediate resistance. Picture this, I mean, it's happened many, many times in human history, in the history of warfare. You have some tribes that are maybe loosely united, or maybe not united at all, but a foreign power moves into attack, and suddenly all those tribes come together and resist the enemy, resist the foreign invader. And that's, in many ways, what happens. Vlasnimir uses the Bulgarian invasion as an excuse to really bring control over all these disparate Serbian tribes, and resist. And this resistance took the form of a sort of guerrilla warfare, in which the Serbs used their superior knowledge of the local train, which was a lot of hills and forests, to wear down the Bulgarian army in three years of grueling fighting. Now, in fact, as usual, history leaves us no records of any single kind of pitched battles. We don't know a lot about this war, except that it just ground on for three years. So, ultimately in 842, the Bulgarian army withdrew from Serbia, reinstating the status quo antebellum, or for those who don't know the Latin, the way things were before the war. Except that now, the Byzantine Emperor Theophilus was dead, and Serbia, under Vlastimir, was gaining nominal independence. So, to recap that a little bit, the Serbs kind of are ready to start this war, the Bulgarians are ready to start this war, Bulgaria sends in an army, but there's, in all likelihood, no real pitch battles. Through three years, the Bulgarians are just traveling around the hills of the Western Balkans looking for a Serbian army to fight to win the war, but there is no Serbian army to fight. And this is something that we're going to see happen a number of times throughout Balkan history. And this is why, you'll remember in some of the first episodes, I talk so much about geography. This is a great example where geography really determined how this, uh, this entire war was going to play out. So, so war's over, the Serbs now have even more independence from the Byzantines, they're even more united, so it's really backfired for the Bulgarians. The Bulgarians are now in a much worse situation. The Byzantines are maybe also in a worse situation, maybe not. I mean, they now have less control over the Serbs, but having a more powerful Serbia is probably going to check Bulgaria in the future, so maybe it's better for them. But things are definitely changing fast. Presian was not about to allow this setback to prevent him from continuing his Macedonia, Macedonian expansion. He was determined to continue taking territory. But first, he had to wait for the peace treaty with the Byzantines to expire. Because while Serbia was his kind of main threat in that area, the territory he wanted to take was still controlled by the Byzantines. So, when the treaty did expire in 846, the Bulgarian army was led once again by Isbul and advanced along the Struma River Valley to the south towards Thessalonica, modern Thessaloniki. Now, this was probably another cover for further advances in the west. This moves southwards towards the Aegean. But the Byzantines, while they were distracted with Slavic uprisings in the Peloponnesus, they did manage to distract Isbul with attacks on Bulgarian thrice. So, again, you kind of see this... This new war has just started while the Bulgarians are trying to make it, you know, this big distracting move towards the south uh, along the Struma River Valley. we see the Byzantines are kind of attacking them off in Thrace and trying to delay things while they take care of these uprisings. So both sides are attempting to out-distract one another in many ways, but ultimately, at this point, Western Macedonia is simply too isolated from central imperial territories for it to really be successfully defended. And Prasian, despite the Byzantine efforts, makes huge gains. He even reaches the Adriatic Sea. You'll be able to see a map of these gains on our website. So now, for the first time, Bulgaria now has its borders on the Black Sea and on the Adriatic Sea. So ultimately, after not very long, a peace treaty is concluded. So after the peace treaty, in the later years of the reign of Presyan, other changes are also occurring throughout Bulgaria. Number one, Christianity is continuing to spread. Now we mentioned Presian's uncle and Ravotas' death at the hands of Malomir and his subsequent sainthood as proof of how the religion was spreading, even within the royal family. Additionally, although we don't know when he died, Isbul's term comes to an end before the end of the reign of Presian. But his able administration through the reigns of three khans shows how the administrative and governing structures of Bulgaria are evolving considerably, especially looking back on the days of the steppe. So we have Christianity expanding, and we have administration becoming more solid, the bureaucracy becoming more dependable, and the reign of the the government, sort of the the reign of the, the territory, becoming, I guess you could say, more able. So, in combination with the building projects which were ongoing throughout this period, Bulgaria was also on the brink of its conversion to Christianity, but still very culturally pagan. And this is uh, a kind of an an interesting thing when it comes to countries converting to Christianity throughout Europe. The conversion to Christianity and the conversion, the shift of uh, religion, is actually much easier than change in the culture. So, if you go throughout Europe, even in places that have been Christian for many, many, many centuries, you'll still see many kind of uh, signs of pagan culture that still exist, things like Christmas trees. They're all over the place. So, when a country, like Bulgaria in this case, converts to Christianity, don't think everything just changes automatically. In some ways, it's a superficial change to begin with that slowly kind of makes its way into the deeper culture, But the culture that existed before, the pagan culture that preceded Christianity, never really goes away fully. So, the cultural element of Christianity then becomes kind of the final piece of the puzzle for Bulgaria to shake off its steppe legacy and turn itself into what some people would call a legitimate European power. So, again, because of the, the Pope and because of the Byzantines, At this period in history, in order to be considered a legitimate, proper European power, you do have to be Christian. And Bulgaria is moving towards that, but not quite there. So all these forces are really coming to a head when, in 852, Presian dies and is succeeded by his son, Boris. So now, everything is about to change, and Bulgaria is really never going to be the same again. So next time, which might be in a month, might be in a few weeks, we're going to talk about Boris. It's going to be a longer episode because quite a lot happens during the reign of Boris, and we're going to talk not just about the battles and the buildings and all these things, but we're really going to try to talk a lot about Christianity, how it comes to Bulgaria, what are the changes it's bringing, all those sorts of details. So keep an eye out for that. We'll try to get out to you guys as soon as we can. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook and especially writing us a review on iTunes. While liking us on Facebook is awesome, writing reviews on iTunes really makes a huge difference. The more people give us us ratings, the more likely our podcast is to kind of show up on more, more people's iTunes. When they search for things in podcasts, Bulgarian History Podcast is going to show up. So that more than anything makes a huge difference. So we'd be really grateful if you could do that. Also, please check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com. You can find useful resources that are going to come along with each episode. For this episode, we're going to have a couple of useful maps that you'll definitely want to check out. Also, as always, consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. I've said it before, I'll say it again, it makes a huge difference for us. We really get excited every single time we get a donation, and it helps us to pay for advertising, to pay for uh, equipment, all the stuff that goes into making this podcast. And again, we really want to apologize for having longer breaks between the last few episodes, but I won't go into details, but my life has been very, very chaotic. A lot of stuff's been happening. But all of that is about to come to an end. I'm about to move back to Sofia. Things should be getting back to a sort of consistent, normal schedule, and I can't wait to it, for it. So anyways, until next time, Uspech, or in English, good luck.